Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, if you if you try to think of uh, sort of the great performances in history, what 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 would you include in that? I mean, you might you might think of just like uh, I don't know whatever whatever comes to mind. I mean, there 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 there's so many. You know, like apparently Laurence Olivier did a great Hamlet. That that, that probably would be up there. Um, you think of Michelangelo's paintings or sculptures. You know, if you think of like the great sort of like circus acts, I mean, in really incredible feats of like, uh, you know, just physical mastery, you know, that have been done. Um, you know, if, uh, if you think of performances, like, you know, I, I would imagine, uh, you know, Wagner's, you know, five hour epic operas were probably like pretty intense and, and things like this. But then if you, if you sort of like expand on the concept of, of, of performance in a way, like probably we are all present at the greatest ongoing performance in history, which is like just beyond, 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 beyond anything that we've mentioned by, by, by degrees of magnitude. And that is the ongoing creation and recreation of, of the universe. And, and wherever you are, you have a front row seat. You know, I remember learning in astronomy one time uh, an idea that I really liked, which was um, in an expanding universe, every single planet or star, whatever it is, is the center of the universe. Because if it's going on and on in every direction, whatever, wherever you are, that, that, that's arguably the center of everything. So here, God is creating and recreating the entire universe, the entire universe in front of our eyes, and every single person, by dint of God's own infinity, has a front row seat in terms of that. And I was thinking about it further than that, though, because I read a, um, I read a commentary on the Torah. Uh, it was just a thought, but, and I don't even remember who said it, but... But it was just something that I, I just I really loved. And I thought, wow. You see, I'm getting to sit in that person's seat. <laughs> like, like it's just this is now kind of like a this is kind of like another perspective on it. On 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 one level, all of us have front row seats. But on another level, the people who know more about the performance have a better appreciation of the performance itself, right? Like, like for instance, like, uh, apparently Rachmaninoff, like, those are the most difficult hand movements. That, that's, that's what I learned. Yeah, I, I see a nod from Sam, so I'm yeah, on solid ground there. So if you, if, you, if you watch someone's hands, like, I, I would imagine if you YouTube Rachmaninoff and hands, <laughs> you'll, you'll probably see how utterly complex that is, right? And, you know, the hands are flying over each other. Now, if you don't know anything about Rachmaninoff, it probably all sounds good, right? But can, can you imagine if you're an expert on Rachmaninoff and you go, oh, wow, look how he hit, no, 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 the, the seventh key, the, 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 the seventh, that, that one, wow. And, and you're right because you know something about it? Then, like, your expertise allows you to see even more beauty, right? So these are the tzaddikim. These are the, 
the Talmud Chachamim. These are the masters of Torah, people who understand what God is enacting and what God is doing. If you get to sit within their expertise, you're able to view the performance, so to speak, and then it's sort of like, wow! So when you learn Torah, and you learn the Torah of the, of the great ones, what you're, what you're being permitted to do is to see, at least at that moment, at least for that one verse of Torah, or for that one thought, you're able to sit in their seat and sort of inhabit their mind, so to speak, and to see the greatness of God from their perspective. Like, in other words, somehow you didn't even know if you could get into the hall, and next thing you know, you've got front row seats, right? So this is like the greatness of learning Torah and learning the commentaries. You have to learn the commentaries because it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's often the difference between being on the outside or being on the inside. It's as, it's as simple as that, you know? So with that in mind, uh, let's, let's, let's enter into this like very amazing, amazing period um, in Torah. Because what we have right now is we're, we're basically, all of us are on the, the border of entering into Israel. What do, what do I mean by that? You know, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving his, his, his final speech and that's, that's Sefer Devarim, which we've just begun, uh, right? The Deuteronomy, as it's also translated as. And that's, that's Moshe Rabbeinu's farewell speech. And he's, it's also called Mishnah Torah. He's, he's reviewing the Torah. And as we've pointed out in, 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 in other talks, something that occurred to me, which I just really like this idea, that, um, you know, we have sort of like this, I don't know if you, irony is not the right word, tension is not the right word, but this interesting uh, construct going on in, in Devarim, which is, while simultaneously it's a review of the Torah, at the same time, there's lots and lots of mitzvahs in it that we haven't encountered yet. So, so normally speaking, when you review something, you don't introduce scads of new material, because it's a review session, right? That's, that's pretty straightforward. And yet, here we have simultaneously, it's a review, and yet we're learning new information. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? And I think, the, for me anyway, the answer is an exciting answer. Because all the mitzvahs, remember, the Torah existed before the world was created. So all the mitzvahs already existed. So Moshe Rabbeinu is not coming up with new mitzvahs. He's just revealing mitzvahs that were always there. But he's doing it during the review of the Torah. So here's, here's, the, here's the answer. There are certain things that you will only discover for the very first time when you go over it again and again. But they were always there. There are many, many things in life that are sitting there waiting for you, but you're only going to discover them if you revisit it again and again and again and again. And then you're going to find these new things that were just sitting there for you the entire time. And... Uh, and that's Devarim on one level. But it, it, goes, it goes a lot further than that. Because, you see, like I say, Moshe Rabbeinu is giving this speech, this speech which is Devarim, on the banks of the Jordan River. 
and we're about to enter into Israel, right? But, but it hasn't happened yet. And we talked about, I think it was last week, we talked about this idea that, that on a very, very deep level, this whole book, Sefer Devarim, ends without an account of the Jewish people entering into the land of Israel. And that is the main storyline of the entire five books, which are the Jews are going into Israel. And now we get to the end of the five books, and remember the five books are a microcosm of absolutely everything in the universe. We get to the end of the fifth book, and not just Moshe hasn't entered into the land of Israel, no one's entered into the land of Israel. The Jewish people have not entered into the land of Israel yet. Okay, you can say the spies did, but that's, that's something else. And those were a couple of individuals. Really, no one's entered in yet. Okay, that happens in the sixth book of the Torah. That's in Sefer Yeshua. Okay, that's fine. But remember, the five books are a microcosm of everything. So what I wanted to say on that, and we're going to introduce a, a new thought in a second, what I wanted to say on that was that the Torah is showing us on a very deep level that there is no closure ever. There's no closure ever. Because the travels of the soul go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And we travel, remember, our soul is a piece of God, right? Remember, you've got levels of infinity. Remember, there's a... Infinity is not just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and going on and on and on and on forever. There's an infinite number of numbers between the number 1 and 2. Between 2 and 3. So you have this concept of levels of infinity. Which means your soul is infinite, because it's a piece of God. But it's just a subset of the infinity of God. Right? God is a greater infinity. So you've got, when the soul leaves the body, after 120, you've got an infinity chasing a higher infinity through all of the dimensions and landscapes of light, which is this glorious, glorious journey of the soul. And it never ends. Because how can the finite ever catch up to the infinite? Right? And remember, in those dimensions, we are in a place that's beyond time. You see, there's... um, a very nice definition, a very important working definition, if you want to sort of keep track of these concepts, that Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver gives. He says that this concept of netzach, of, which is translated as eternity. See, when we say eternity in, in, um, in English, we tend to think of the endless expanse of time. But eternity in Torah is a dimension that's beyond time. It's above time. Do you understand? So it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole nother mindset. It's not more of the same. It's just something beyond what we know now. Okay. So that, that's, the, that's the journey of the soul. Okay. So if we're just constantly chasing God and there is no closure, well, I would say the, the Messianic period, Mashiach, that... That's, that's a bit of closure. That, that's, that's on some level some pretty strong closure. So where does that fit into this thought? So there's levels of closure. There's levels of closure, just like there's levels of everything. Okay, so let's get into levels of closure in a moment. I remember I once asked Reb Shlomo how many albums he had, right? And he said, on, a, on an album level or on a tape level? <laughs> 
And I thought to myself, you know, there's, there's levels to everything. <laughs> there's levels to absolutely everything. And if you want to sort of like be like a little bit wise, you know, the less you can think in terms of black and white, I mean, you also have to think in terms of black and white on some level, because otherwise you can excuse yourself. You know what I mean? So on some level, you're either doing it or you're not doing it, and, and, and that's, that's just the emiss, that's just the truth. You've got to hold yourself to that. That's black and white. So that's on one side. But on the other side, it's levels. <laughs> and you have to also appreciate, you know, the beauty of getting there, you know? But not forget that there is a destination. Because you can, you can say, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. And then really, it's just, it's just a trick because you don't want to actually get to there. You know, so, so again, all of Judaism is reconciling opposites often, right? You have to have total faith. God is running the, the exact, the totality of the world. Okay, now what are you doing? <laughs> but wait, I just said God is running the entire world. Okay, good. Did you make the phone call for the job? Did you send the resume? Did you knock on the door? Did you produce the material? God can do anything! <laughs> right. Now, what are you doing? <laughs> it, it, and it, it, never, it never stops. And so you say, well, if I, if I do it, then that shows a lack of belief. No, no, no. You see, the highest level, see, without going through the whole medrash, because I, I haven't got it in front of me, it's a, it's a little bit... Uh, detailed, but I'll just skip to the end of the, the Midrash. They talk about the prayers of various kings, right? And they talk, about, they talk about one king who didn't even get out of bed when there was a big war that was coming, because he said, if I get out of bed, I'm going to think that whatever I did, that I'm responsible for the victory. Now, this is after like a chain of, of, of kings who were doing successively more or less things, right? So it gets down to the bottom line where this king didn't even get out of bed because he thought, you know what? That's going to show lack of faith in God, right? And on the other extreme, on the other extreme, you had David Amelech, who was in front of the army, swinging his sword, right? Eradicating the enemy and knowing that with every single thing that he was doing, it was all God doing it. So they say, well, what's the higher aspect of faith? Is it the one who just didn't even move a muscle because he put everything into God's hands? And the answer is no. The Jewish view is that the greatest, the greatest exemplar of life in this world was David Amelech because he was actively involved in the front lines of the war doing all of the military mastery while simultaneously crediting it all to God. And that's the, that's, the, that's the ideal Jew. That's the ideal Jew. That's the ideal person. So, so the, the headline, the take-home thing from that is don't fool yourself, don't fool yourself into thinking that an act of faith or an act of religiosity excuses you from hard work. Because that's not Torah. That's, 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 that's what the Rambam would call self-love or rationalization. Okay? You, you, we need to avoid that. And especially, even worse, to actually matter ourselves, excuse ourselves from acts of laziness and to bless ourselves by calling it, you know, tzitkis, righteousness. <laughs> that's, 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 when the, that's when religion starts to become 
You see, the Gomorrah refers to Torah, says it can be a potion of life or a potion of death. Right? That's when you start to get into the potion of death, sort of like realms. When we start, when we develop or allow ourselves to develop negative mitos, negative character traits, and then bless it under the umbrella of saying that, ah, this is faith, this is righteousness, this is Torah. That, that's when it gets creepy. So, so we have to be very mindful of that, okay? So, so the Torah keeps us straight, and we're, we're going to get back to this idea that, uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu is on the banks of the river with, with the nation of Israel, and they're about to enter into Israel. Okay. Now, now Rabbi Freeman pointed out yesterday, Shabbos, in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, something very awesome, that if you look at the very end of the previous book, which is Sefer Bamidbar, Numbers, right? And then you look at the first Pasuk of Sefer Devarim, you see a very substantial shift. And now we're going to get back into this level of levels of closure. Okay? Now listen to this. This is the end of the previous book, Bamidbar. Now keep track of the, of the location. These are the commandments and the ordinances that Hashem commanded through Moshe to the children of Israel in the plains of Moab at the Jordan by Yericha. Okay, so very clearly we're on, we're in, we're not in Israel yet. We're in the plains of Moab, right? By the Jordan. All right, now the very next, this is now the very, very next verse in the Torah. Listen carefully. These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. Right? I'm not even going to finish the verse, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Because that's the key phrase. Huge shift that just happened. A huge shift by the on the other side of the Jordan. But we know that Moshe didn't get to the other side of the Jordan. The other side of the Jordan means Israel. So what just happened? Something dramatic, incredibly dramatic just happened. All of a sudden the point of view shifted from Moshe giving his farewell address to the Jewish people in a, in, a, in a review of the entire Torah and what we need to do, including all sorts of new things, right? And he starts to say it on the, on, in, on, on the body level, right? On the, on the soul inside the body level. He's saying it on the not-Israel side of the Jordan. And yet, when the speech begins, all of a sudden it's become recorded on the other side of the Jordan. And, and, and here you see, here you see something, this is, that's the Lubavitcher Rebbe's comment, and, and, and here you see, you know what just happened? You just got to sit in the Lubavitcher Rebbe's seat and look at the Torah and creation. Amen. That's what just happened. It's like, Right? Do you see how incredible that is? Who, who our tzaddikim are? What, what they allow us to do? 
Like, would, would you have ever had that thought? In, would you have ever seen that in your No, because you didn't, you didn't have that seat. But at least for a moment, we got to sit in his seat. Okay. So now I, I'm just going to just kind of give my own personal reflection on that. I don't want you to confuse the sources here. That's why I'm telling you that. So, so remember... Something very, very important. And this, is, this confuses a lot of people. Uh, this is kind of like step one in terms of understanding what the Torah is. A lot of people, and you know, what's, what's so heartbreaking about this is that the thought I'm about to tell you comes from the point of view of someone trying to be rigorous and intelligent. That, that's the heartbreaking thing about what I'm about to say. But, you, but anyone who has a true understanding understands that there's no intelligence in this comment at all. Okay? Which is that people look at the five books and they see it as a historical dated document. And they don't understand that the narrative on top of the Torah, the events, okay, now we're talking about the Moabites, or now we're talking about Lot, or whatever it is, that the narrative of the Torah is the most superficial, the most superficial layer that was just put on top of this infinite dynamic, you know, godly construct. And that's absolutely forever. That's absolutely forever. We talked about this unique thing, as far as I know, only the Hebrew language has this, of all the languages of the world this unique construct in grammar called the reversing vav, which is, if you put a vav in front of a verb in the Torah, it makes the past future and the future past. There's no other language that does that, as far as I know. In other words, God himself found a unique grammatical construct to show and illustrate the eternality of the Torah. The fact that the Torah is absolutely forever. And now we're seeing another aspect of that in terms of this comment here. We're showing how Moshe Rabbeinu is starting to give this address on the not-Israel side of the Jordan, and yet when we're reading and learning about it, all of a sudden it's coming from the other side of the Jordan. Because we get to the other side of the Jordan and Moshe Rabbeinu's words, everything that he's saying is still relevant on the other side of the Jordan. Because he's not just talking as an individual at this moment. He's proclaiming the truth of all eternity, not just when we're on the not-Israel side of the Jordan, but when we're on the Israel side of the Jordan too. And if you look carefully at the language that the Torah is using, it's showing you that Moshe's words are absolutely forever, even as he's giving it on the not-Israel side of the Jordan. It's equally true, or maybe even more true, on the Israel side of the Jordan. Because the words are forever. And with that in mind, there's something that, you know, how I love the letter Aleph, right? So if you listen to any of these talks, we always go back to the letter Aleph. This is the only book of the Torah that begins with the letter Aleph. Right? 
It's sort of like, because right now at these heights, we're going into these dizzying heights right now. And it's like, we're crossing over the Jordan. And it's like, in order to get to that, we're encountering the olive. <laughs> right? Because that's the first letter on the other side of the Jordan. Like, we're getting into, like, forever country. We're jumping, we're jumping over this olive, or into this olive, or diving into this olive. So, you know, according to Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, the olive, the upper yud of the olive, these are the higher waters. Then the vav is the rikia, and the yud on the bottom is the lower waters. So it's funny because we're talking about crossing the Jordan. And we're talking about like swimming through this olive, which are, which are the waters, right? And Yardane, so I know Rabbi Wolfson brings it, maybe the Ma'or Shemesh also brings it, I'm not sure. Yardane is Yerid Nun, which means the descent of the letter Nun. So Nun is the number 50, which stands for the 50 gates of wisdom, the, the 50 Shari Bina, right? So it's sort of like, what is, where are we? Like, you know, you're just turning a page and it's like, okay, what's next? But meanwhile, what is happening? You're going into this time vortex, you know? You're just spinning right into forever. So, so I think, you know, I, I was thinking about it and, and I think that it's, um, I think that it's interesting. Remember, the Chachamim arranged when we're, we're, when we're learning the various um, uh, parshas of the week according to the calendar. So certain, sometimes there's often a slide in terms of the parshas. It's not always exactly that week of the year. But certain Torah portions are absolutely fixed. And so the Torah will catch up to these portions so that, so that you know, you'll, you'll double the portions. Sometimes you'll read two parshas on Shabbos or something like this. So, so there's a way of pacing it out so that certain parshas always 100% of the time happen at a certain time. So this is an example of one of them. Devarim is an example of one of them. And Devarim is always being read before Tisha B'Av, before the ninth of Av. And, and you know, I wanted to explain it in this way. Why? Why are we reading Devarim before Tisha B'Av always? So, on the simplest level, it contains the word Eicha. And until Mashiach comes, we're, we're reading the book of Eicha, the book of Lamentations on the ninth of Av. So, the Eicha-Eicha connection is, is a very strong one. But let's, let's, let's continue to think about it. So, we know that one of the main reasons why we're still in exile is because of the fact that there's sinas chinam, which means causeless hatred. We're hating each other for no reason, and, is, and there's a lack of unity. And as long as that happens, then, you know, what are we going to do? It, that's just, the, the fixing is, 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 is exile until we get it together. You know, I, I often think that there's so many mitzvahs in the Torah, and we say, we really want to bring the korbonos. We really want to bring the offering. We really want to serve you, God, on that level. But it's almost as though God is saying, you know what? Have you figured out how to love each other yet? 
Because you can still do that one. You don't need a temple to start loving each other. How about, how about getting the basics down? It's almost as though God is saying, how about getting the basics down? And then when you get the basics down, you can go and, and, and do the other stuff that you want to do, that I've commanded you to do, so to speak, says God. Right? So one of the beautiful things I noticed is, um, it's a little bit technical, I'll say it, I'll say it quickly. You see, sometimes because in Israel, Pesach is seven days, also Sukkot, by the way, but let's talk about Pesach right now. And outside of Israel, Pesach is eight days. So, so that being the case, sometimes the way the calendar falls out is that Pesach is over in Israel because it's only seven days, and then Shabbos comes and you can do the portion of the week for Shabbos, the regular portion of the week. But outside of Israel, sometimes because Pesach is eight days, it's still going to be Pesach for us. And so when Shabbos comes, we don't do the regular portion of the week. We're still doing the special portion for Pesach. Okay, hopefully that was clear. What that means is, is that we then fall one Parsha behind. So Israel then is doing their one Parsha of the week, and then everyone outside of Israel is one Parsha behind. Okay? By the way, you should know that if anyone is ever going to have a bar mitzvah and they're going to go to Israel to have the bar mitzvah, check the calendar. Many people have been tripped up on this where you go according to your schedule and you've got the wrong parsha and you get to Israel and you can't do the other parsha and the poor bar mitzvah kid or bat mitzvah girl, whatever it is, has been learning the wrong parsha. Right? I mean, there's no, and, and then they show up, and it's like their big day, they don't know what is going on. And it's like, so anyway, think ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> now you know this piece of information. So, um, so anyway, the point is. The point is that if you have, um, that, that when do we catch up? At a certain point, we catch up. And that is on Devarim. The whole world catches up on Devarim. And the Chachamim paced out the Torah and said, even if it's one of those years where we're out of sync because of Pesach, when Parshas Devarim comes, everyone is on the same page. Why is that important? Why, why, why is that important? And the answer is because we need unity. We need unity. And we have to be, so to speak, figuratively and literally on the same page as a people. We need to be together. In other words, as we're heading into this period of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, where there's this causeless hatred that's still kind of rampant in the world, right? We need to have unity. So, so the sages fixed it so that all of a sudden, any division that's happening inside Israel, outside Israel, among Jews, so to speak, everyone is getting together at the same point in the Torah. And then, once we have unity, then we can proceed together toward Tisha B'Av. Okay. Now, I want to suggest another reason also. Why we have Devarim specifically before Tisha B'Av. Because... One of the sort of like, how do we enact causeless hatred? 
How do you manifest hatred in your heart? And so the main tool for manifesting hatred of the heart for no reason is through what we call Lashon Hara, through bad speech, right through. And remember, very, very important, it doesn't just mean um, slander, like saying something that's not true, or sharing an opinion which is very sort of like um, hateful or disruptive or causes, you know, uh, pain to other people. Lashon Hara, halachically speaking, according to Jewish law, can also be the truth. Like, so for instance, you could say, you see that guy? He just got out of jail. Could be 100% true. 1,000% true. But it's, it's also Lashon Hara. Like, so, so no one should excuse themselves. By the way, if the reason why you're bringing it up is because that person's about to enter into a business deal with your good friend, and, and, and he's saying, hey, you know, what do you know about that guy? There's circumstances where it's 100% important and permissible to say, but you just have to learn the, you can't add to it. You, you understand? But you, in those moments, you ask a rough, right? So, so to, to get the exact details of how to phrase it. Okay. So, so what's the point? The point is, is that isn't it interesting before Tishabav, before we talk about the destruction of the temple, which happened through Lashon Hara, that the Parsha that we're reading is called Devarim, which means words. In other words, it's, God is telling us very directly, fix your words, get together, be unified, and fix your words. Because the words that you're using are something that can either cause unity or they can cause tremendous division and pain. And also remember, very important, that the word in Hebrew, devarim, it means two things simultaneously. It means words, but it also means things. Because for us, we understand the power of words. We understand that words are also things. And that you can injure someone with words as bad or worse as if you throw rocks at them or shoot bullets at them. Words can cause the same amount of pain. So, so words are things. Not, not only that, but on a mystical level, we say God spoke creation into existence. In other words, there's a seamless connection, a simultaneity between God speaking and action becoming manifest. So words and things are on, on some level simultaneous, right? They're, they're, they're one and the same. And when you speak words to someone, you change their perception, and then they act on that new perception, and so now they're in a new world than they were a moment ago. So you actually create worlds through speech just like God did. All right. So now, I want to tell you something, now that since we're talking about speech, something like very, something very amazing, I think. Something and, and very, very intense. So, in, in Megillus Eicha, in the book of Eicha, the book of Lament, Lamentations, we have, um, it's written in, in an alphabetical acrostic, <coughs> meaning to say, Olive, Bez, Gimel, Dalit, it goes through the alphabet, the verses, right? And, and that's true for the first chapter, 
And then you see something really, really interesting. In the second chapter, it also does the same thing with one exception. I'll tell you in a moment. In the third chapter, it does the exact same thing, but with one exception, the same exception. The next chapter goes through Aleph base with one exception, and it's the same exception. So, what's going on? What is this exception? The exception is, is that in the Aleph base, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Ayin comes, comes before the letter Pe. Okay? If you go through the Aleph base, you'll see first you say the letter Ayin, then afterwards you say the letter Pe. Fascinatingly, fascinatingly, and remember, the book of Eicha is written by a prophet, the prophet Yirmiyahu. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, uh, uh, there's the, the one exception is Yirmiyahu puts the letter Pe first and then the letter Ayin. Otherwise, the entire chapter is in normal order. And he does that same reversal in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Isn't that interesting? And I saw the, a comment from the Marasha, very, very interesting, that so he deliberately didn't do it in the first chapter to show you, hey, I know how the Aleph base goes. <laughs> right? Isn't that very interesting? Very, very interesting. First, he shows you how it's supposed to go so that you understand, like, you, you don't think, oh, you know, in those days... They reverse those two letters. No, 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 no. First he shows you how it goes. I know how it goes. Then he does this little hint and the same hint over and over. Why? So um, Rabbi Yochanan in Gemara Sanhedrin gives an explanation. Very fascinating explanation. Now look, let me just pause to give you a bit of commentary before I tell you what Rabbi Yochanan says. You see, the letters ayin and peh, which, which, which Yirmiyahu is, is, is reversing, right, are interesting letters because they're not just letters in the Torah. Ayin is also a word and peh is also a word. Okay, what is ayin? Ayin, in addition to being a letter, is also the eye. It's, it's the word in Hebrew for your eye. Peh means mouth. That's, that's how you spell the letter Peh. It's Peh. So that's your mouth. So these aren't just two letters in the Torah. These are two organs in the body. And he's showing how somehow, in terms of the destruction that takes place around us, they're linked to this reversal of the eye and the mouth. Now look at look at this. You want to see something interesting? You know, it says that we have the Torah teaches that we have 248 um, parts of the body on one side and 365 on, on the other, and that adds up to 613. So our entire body is actually formed like the positive and negative commandments of the Torah, because the whole universe is made out of Torah. And we're also made out of Torah. So it makes sense that the body parts correlate each body part with a different mitzvah in the Torah, right? So if you want to see another cool, amazing illustration of that principle, 
look how, remember, what goes first? The ayin goes first, right? And then the peh, the mouth, goes second, right? And that's the order of the alphabet. Look how your eyes are above your mouth. Your eyes go first, the ayin goes first, and the peh goes second. It goes, it's, it's underneath. So literally, if we only knew, if we could actually look at each other like some, ma- you know, you, you should know that our greatest Kabbalists were also doctors, right? The Ramban was a doctor. You know, Rav Yosef Karo was a doctor. So can you imagine if we had the eyes to see each other what our actual Kabbalistic anatomy was like how we're actually perfectly arranged according to the Torah. You know that every single person spells out their body, spells out the Yud Kei Vav Kei, right? You know, your head is the Yud. And, and for men, or when you put on tefillin, right? That's the, that's the tip of the Yud. And then your torso is the letter He, like hang out your arms, you see the He. And then your trunk, right? From your chest down to your hips, that's the letter Vav. And then your legs are also the letter He. So every single person's body spells out, spells out the name of Hashem. And then you, you have like all these amazing sub-teachings within that, like how your eyes precede your mouth, how the letter Ayin precedes the letter Pe. You know, just levels and levels and levels and levels, and we don't even begin to know. We don't even begin to know. So, what does Rabbi Yochanan say? He says that their mouth preceded their eyes. Meaning, they talked before they saw. And, of course, the rabbis teach, famously, that before the spies actually even left to go to Israel, they had already decided what they were going to report before they even saw, before they even saw, right? That's the Etz Yosef. That's, that's what he says. Before they even saw, they had already decided what they were going to say. And that's why in Echa, the letter Pe is coming first when it shouldn't. The mouth, the talking is going first, and then the seeing is going second. Because how many of us mouth off before we understand? Before we really know, we're already giving our opinion. It's, you know, it's okay not to give your an opinion. And it's okay not to have an opinion. Not everyone has to be a talk show host. You know what I mean? Who's paying you? Who's paying you to have so many opinions? <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> if it's your parnosa, okay. But... Really, honestly, what are you generating with all of your opinions for the most part? You know, it's, it's, it, the, the, the Gomorrah says that a person has to train their tongue to say, I don't know. And I heard Arav say that in every lecture he tries to say, I don't know at least twice. <laughs> right? Because sometimes the more you learn, the more you forget that you don't know. I saw something that stays with me. I would say it almost haunts me, really. Frank Rich, it was a uh, an op-ed columnist in the New York Times, and you know, in 
certain worlds, you know, if, you're, if you've got a regular column in terms of like reporting on your opinion of what's going on in the world, and you can do it in the name of the New York Times, that's really like you have arrived, right? In certain quarters. So Frank Rich left that post, and he wrote his goodbye column. And I remember reading his goodbye column. And he said, you know, I'm leaving to do a number of different things, and um, I just want to tell you about my experience of having this job. And one of the things that he said was the pressure of having, I don't know how many times a week he had to post his column. It's probably at least two times a week, maybe three times a week. He said the pressure of having a, a column that I had to post, listen to this, forced me to have opinions or to write opinions that were actually stronger than I, than I really felt. Right? Because you've got to write a good column. So, can you imagine you're writing a column and you say, who knows, maybe it's like this. Could be. <laughs> who's going who's gonna to read that? You can't say that. Can't, you can't say that like eight times during an opinion piece. On the other maybe, maybe you could say, I don't know. Perhaps it's like this. You can have your own opinion. <laughs> like, oh, no one's going to read that. So in order to keep your job, you've got to say, and how dare he? And, you know, and, you know this is uprooting the foundation of all the rest, right? But we don't have op-ed columns in the New York Times. There's no pressure on us to have an authoritative opinion on something. You can feel a certain way. It's okay. It's the way you feel. You know, one of the things, and, and if, you, if you want to work on your, uh, what we call a nevis kite, if you want to work on your humility, which is, you know, right? One of the things to watch out for, to try to monitor yourself for, is presenting opinions as facts. Right? Oh, did you see that? Did you see the new so-and-so film? Yeah, it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. It wasn't good. How about, you know what? It wasn't my favorite. I wasn't crazy about it. I was, I, personally, I was hoping for more. But it wasn't good. <laughs> Who are you to say it wasn't good? You like that restaurant? No, it's not any good. It's not your taste. You may have caught it on a bad day. Who are you to say it's not good? That's called presenting opinions as facts. And there's an arrogance to it. Whether a person intends to do that or not, there's an arrogance to it. And as a, that, I would say, is one of the best things to concentrate on if a person wants to open up their heart. Because they'll, they'll be checking that. You'll be checking yourself. We're, we're checking ourselves when we do that. And then you start to open up your heart. It's a very big correlation there. It's like one of those, you know, like in acupuncture, you just put a needle in exactly this place and it opens up gates someplace. That's like one of those places that's like some spiritual acupuncture with one speech, right? You, you put the needle right there, and then, like, gates open up 
in terms of personal refinement. So I want to build on this idea, and we'll start to wrap it up, between this reversing of the mouth and the eyes. Right? Because I noticed something that really struck me. Now remember, we have, uh, we have we're, we've entered into the period of the year. We're, we're in this block of 10 that's coming up, that, that we're in the middle of right now. What, what is the block of 10? So we've got the three haftoras of, so to speak, doomsaying, saying like, Jewish people, you've got to get your act together, otherwise the temple is going to be destroyed. Right? And remember, it says that any generation where the temple is not rebuilt, it's, a, it's as though it were destroyed in that generation. Just to make it very real. And I saw in the name, I, I believe it was the Sfas Emes, he, he sort of softened it slightly. He says, in any generation where you don't see the rebuilding, it's as if it was destroyed. So at least if you're heading in the right direction, for heading in the right direction, then we can take a little bit of consolation in that. Okay? But, but the idea is you've got these three super strong Haftoras, and then you've got the next seven Haftoras are called the Haftoras of Consolation, where God is saying, hey, look, you blew it, I get it, but I still love you, and it's, it's, in the end it's going to work out well. So anytime you see this, this, this construct of three and seven, like we have here, it's basically in line with the spherot. Because the spherot, you have the top three spherot, you have ten spherot, which is basically the energies that the, that the universe is, is made out of. You've got the top three and you've got the bottom seven. And interestingly, it all culminates at the end of the seven is Rosh Hashanah, it's the new year. We know God created the, the, the world out of the ten spherot. Right? Or he made the ten spherot, and this was the making of the world. And we know that every Rosh Hashanah, basically the universe is completely remade. So we're actually in this process right now of the, of the energy building toward the creation of the new year. So this is now the third of the very strong Haftoras. It's coming before Tishabav. And, and, and it says, you know, th- these words, these, these words are like amazing. So, so Yirmiyahu is, is rebuking, is rebuking the Jewish people. So he says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey his master's trowel, meaning the, the watering hole. Israel does not know. My people does not perceive. So can you imagine? I mean, that feels like such a strong rebuke to me. <laughs> that it's sort of like, and an, an ox knows. A donkey knows. You don't know? An ox knows. A donkey knows. You don't know? So, so, interestingly though, if you look into the, the Hebrew of it, it says, Lo yoda ami lo hisbonan. 
Now, with, with keeping in mind, because I'm sort of building on this thought of the reversal of the pay and the ayin, right? Right? Because first comes the eyes, then comes the mouth. Right? First you see with your eyes and you, you try to understand. And then you speak. You don't speak before you understand. So in this, in this, in this verse, das, lo yada, is put before lo hisbonan. Hisbonan is from the word bina. So, so, so when we talk about the spherot, the ordering of the spherot, we say hachma is first, right? Underneath that is bina. Underneath that is das. By the way, the, the, the first letters of that spell Chabad. That's where Chabad comes from. That first comes Chachma, then comes Bina, then comes Das. So you could say the way it's sort of classically explained is Chachma is like that lightning flash, right? They just, how did you get that idea? It's just like a lightning flash, right? And then Bina is already kind of like you're beginning to understand it. You're starting to develop it, right? So a lot of times we say women have the quality of bina. They excel in bina, which is development, which is like the gestation of a, of a child. Like, like hachma is that first impregnation, right? But then bina is the development, the full gestation of the actual entity. And then das is like the fullness of the integration of hachma and bina. Then all of a sudden it becomes what we would call understanding, right? So, so, so Hachma, Bina, and then Das. But, but this, this verse, Yirmiyahu, who says an ox understands and an donkey understands, you don't understand? Interestingly, first it's putting the word Das, and then it's putting the word a derivative of Bina, meaning we're reversing our process of understanding. In other words, why does a donkey know? And why does an ox know? And how is it that we don't know? Because we're short-circuiting the process of understanding. We're, we're, we're reaching this completion of das before we fleshed out the entire thought. So I, I, I believe that, he's, that Yirmiyahu is pointing to a fault in our level of thinking of how we're processing information and, 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 and in our inability to properly process information we end up lagging behind the ox and the donkey. So let me ask you some big questions. Why did God make the world? Why did God make you? What are we supposed to be doing? The, the, and can you imagine isn't that the most basic information that every single person needs to know? Can you imagine? I'm too busy to answer that because I've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And then a person puts them on track where they never answer the very basic question of being alive and being in this world because they were too busy already understanding before they processed what it was that needed to be understood? Is that not putting your mouth before your eyes? 
putting your full, complete understanding before you've understood? So, how do we rebuild? God willing, we'll see the completion of, of all of our hopes and dreams in the next few days. God willing. In order to do that, we have to at least make a change in the direction that we're facing. And to consider these questions, why is there a world? Why is there a me? What am I supposed to be doing? If we can begin to at least grapple with that question and to understand that whatever answer we give, if it involves serving God with all of our hearts and keeping the Torah mitzvahs, that that is an essential part of any real answer to that question, then at the very, 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 very least will be on the road to rebuilding. Now for some questions and answers. A quick comment about Lashon yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of times, I just wanted to uh, talk about how I understand it is, um, I used to think Lashon Hara was someone telling someone else about this and some of that, but I'm starting to understand um, that even if I'm alone in my room and I start talking negatively about someone, that would also be constitute as Lashon Hara ultimately, because it's lush and horror means negative talk, ne but not necessarily in, in between two people. So I'm trying to understand it that it's not just interacting with someone and expressing, but it's also yeah. in my own head and how I think and what, what thoughts yeah. I'm thinking, negative. So it, it's interesting, you know, it, it sparks a couple of thoughts. One is, so um, you, you, you should know, first of all, halakhically speaking, lush and horror isn't just speaking lush and horror. Lashon Hara is also listening to Lashon Hara. So if you listen to Lashon Hara, that's also Lashon Hara. So you have to do either, you have to either pick up and leave the room, or you have to try to actively change the subject, or you can sort of like saying, hey, that's Lashon Hara, but you have to be careful with that, because you don't want to embarrass the person publicly, because now you're putting out fires with gasoline. Right, you're causing bigger problems trying to eliminate the first problem. So you have to be, you have to be wise in terms of which is the best method. Rabbi Nachman even talks about how at that moment, if someone is speaking Lashon Hara, that you have to think with 110% of your being something positive about that person. Like if for whatever reason you're just handcuffed in that situation and you can't employ one of those methods that I just described, at least at that moment, thinking about only good about the person. But we have a we have a, a mitzvah by the Pesach table, which is you have to say the four questions. So the question is, you know, a question requires an answer. So if you're alone, if you're having a Seder by yourself, they ask, halakhically speaking, do you have to say what happens with the four questions? Because that's a that's a um, that's a give and take moment. And they say, no, halakhically, you're supposed to say the four questions because you're asking yourself. And you can give the answers yourself. So what I'm trying to validate in terms of what you're saying is the idea, that the notion of speaking Lashon Hara because you yourself are hearing your own self speak Lashon Hara. <laughs> so there's a speaker and a listener, right? Now, whether that's halakhically considered 
Lushan Hara or not, I don't know. It may not be. But it goes to a deeper place, which is that one of the ways to get out of the trap or the habit of speaking Lashon Hara is to start to work on giving people the benefit of the doubt on a regular basis. And because all change in speech happens first through change of thought. Right? And you know, we were talking about on Shabbos, I think something very deep, something very important. I think I want to try to start saying this point more and more and more, because I think this is a, an important one. See, like, if you want to speak good things, you've got to believe good things, right? So, so here's my question. What is your understanding of the initial point of creation? Right? So, for a lot of people, it would be, let there be light. Let there be light. So, which means, what does that mean? That means there was darkness. That means darkness is the initial point of creation. And then God said, Vayihi or, let there be light, and then light came. Right? But darkness is the initial point of creation. Or, or, you can understand that God existed before the creation of the world, and that one of the names of God is Or in Sof, which means light without end, and that the initial point of creation is actually endless light. And that's where creation begins, with endless light. A very, very big difference. A very, very big difference. It's not just an intellectual, like, oh, oh, that's interesting. Is it darkness that I think is the beginning of creation? Or do I think that light is the beginning? That, that will affect what kind of person you are and how you think. If you integrate, if you integrate light as the initial point. That's another one of those, you know, spiritual acupuncture moments. You know? Because if you say, okay, it's all, then that means it's all light, essentially. Right now, even now, it's all light. Okay, so there's a lot of veils, and there's still a lot of fixing that needs to be done. There's still a lot of suffering. I get it. I'm not being naive. I get it. But at the same time, it's coming from the standpoint of light. Not coming from the standpoint of darkness. So these are the type of things that, that if you sort of like bathe your mind, if you put your mind in this mikvah, right, then, then the speech that comes out changes. Uh, I've asked this question before, but never to a professional comedy writer. Huh. Um, I'm, I love the Lazon Harad idea. Um, I also like irreverent humor. I like gallows right. humor. Right. I like triumph, the insult, comic right. dog, and dirty right. fun. Yes. Um, now, I understand yeah. that humor yeah. is not always the appropriate response yeah. to, to a given moment. Right. I understand the idea of knowing your audience. Right. But if I'm going to really do this, yeah. do I have to let that go completely? Yeah. I, I think you have to, to you have to you have to ask someone else because I this is you know how I make my living and right. so I'm not going to be able to give you a purely objective answer. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I had one kind of one question and one and one thought. Uh, the question connecting back to the Lashon Hara comment, uh, I was wondering if you had a real practical tool that you could share that when you, for example. Um, if in the work setting you're finding uh, someone, a coworker, to be incredibly incompetent, 
consistently, and it gets to a point you really, I, at least I have a lot of yeah. trouble spinning it in a positive way where this person is right. not holding up. With right. Anyway, yeah. so the, the question is, is there a practical tool sure. that someone, you know, that is that? And then yeah. the comment, which is more of a, I thought it was before we were talking about the, the, the five books, and again, we don't get into the land of Israel, and, you know, one of the, I love the, um, the way you um, kind of spin that in terms of like closure, uh, that's beautiful. And another idea is that maybe Hashem is saying, look, I can bring you all the way there, but you have to take that last step. It's like you have to take that yes. little bit of action to actually yes. step into the land, you know? Yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I like that too, because ultimately, you know, we're partners with God, right? So, so we, we also have to do in terms of the Lashon Hara thing, I, my, my best advice would be to actually learn the halachas of Lashon Hara. Um, the, there's a book called Guard Your Speech, it's in English, and there's a, there's a compendium of halachas. It's probably best to do if you can do it with a, with a teacher or with someone else, because um, you know the, the points need to be explained and things like that. Anytime that you're learning a halacha, a Jewish law safer, it's really best to learn it with um, a rabbi, even if it's in English. Because there are a lot of um, there's a lot of context and there are a lot of exceptions and there are a lot of remember the the Torah is alive and and the example that we always use is that that you can have like say a uh, someone who's financially you know in a in a positive place and someone who's financially more challenged and they can have the exact exact kashrus. Um, you know, problem in their kitchen. And you would say in, in one instance to the person who can afford to maybe throw out the plate, the halacha might be to that person, you have to throw out the plate. Whereas the answer to the exact, exact same problem to the person who has less means might be, you know, something you can, you can, uh, you can, you can, uh, you know, put it in boiling water or whatever it is. And then there might be, there might be a, um, a way to fix the situation. So, so what, what you see from that, it's a, it's a good case in point, because what you see from that is that the halacha is not frozen. And to the person who, say, is, you know, in the less well-off situation, they may read that, that, that line in the book, and they go, oh, I have to throw out the plate. And they didn't have to throw out the plate. Right? So, so it's, a lot of these laws of speech are, are complicated, and they're case-based, and that's not to make halacha ever more complex and challenging and oh, I'm drowning in the amount of halacha. No, no, no. The opposite. It's, it's to show you that it's alive and it's meant for your situation at that moment. And, and so really what you're doing at that point is you're, you're accessing the, 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 the divinity of the halacha because you're finding out how it applies to you and your exact situation. Right? So... But anyway, there, there are books which have the laws in English. And, and by the way, just a, a general comment right now, which is, they say that if someone is having trouble in any area of, of Torah, right, whether it's fill in the blank, everyone's got their challenges, right, that it's actually, and this is very counterintuitive, this is very counterintuitive, it's good to read to learn the halachas of that thing. And, 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 and there's a part of us that sort of like goes, no, that's the last thing that I want to do. That's the last thing that I want to do. 
but I, I have experienced this, it actually has the opposite effect. And let me tell you why, because this is sort of like the surprising X factor of this. This is why it's such good advice. Because the Yetzirah, the, the negative inclination, likes to feed off ignorance. And what it does is, it, it takes one's fear and it compounds it in everything like this. But when you actually read the Halacha, all of a sudden it's very black and white. And you go, oh, I thought it was much worse. I thought it was, in my mind, it was much worse. And it doesn't mean that at that moment when you read it, now I have to do it, because all of us are working toward getting there. In our own way, we're working toward getting there. But if you actually know that the thing that you're driving to is 10 minutes away, and it's not 400 miles away, even if you're not there yet, how you begin to relate to that, that, that thing is very, very different. So actually, clarity is, is a great counter to the Yetzirah, who's trying to feed off your fear and ignorance. There was two things. One was in response to all the talk of Lush and Horror, one was a thought I had during your speech, uh, which you should have gone for further. <laughs> I guess I'll continue with the Lush and Horror talk, and then I want to ask you sure. one other question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always think in terms of Lush and Horror, you know, I, I guess your father uh, helped people psychologically or other ways. And I know that many people have conflicts. Either they have, I remember, you know, um, a great rabbi said everybody has problems with anger, or, or everybody, you know, which means obviously that you're in conflict with someone, or you see something one way, and I, they say the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by that, that I have one point of view, you have another point of view, and I couldn't come at you with enough respect or love, even though I tried, but whatever, because we all want the other person to see our way, because we think we're right. So I think part of it is the big picture, and sometimes is you want to get out your anger at that moment, or you want a conflict, so you need someone to talk to. Is that a, is there a therapeutic? Yeah, okay, so very good. So I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up, it, and, and that's very key. So let's say you're having an issue with someone. Right? So, so and, and you need help in terms of getting past this problem that you have with the other person, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you want to discuss it with a third party, with a friend of yours, mm -hmm. to help you. So, if you begin, this is what I learned, if you begin that conversation by saying to your, the third party, to your friend, you know what, can you please help make peace between me and this person? Mm -hmm. Here is my issue that I'm having and then you describe it, everything takes on a different character. Because instead of going, this guy does this, and this guy does that, and he messed me up in this way and that way, and everything like that. But if you say, you know something, can you help me make peace? Because this guy's doing this, and he's doing that, and what's my role, and what's my responsibility in this? And it changes the whole thing. Because now the listener is listening, how can he bring the two of you together in terms of you just poisoning that guy to also hate him because you hate him? <laughs> right? That, yeah, and, that's, and, 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 and one should do that. And if you find yourself, like for instance, let's say that, hey, I don't speak Lashonara, or I'm like really good about that, or I'm very careful about that. But, so when I go to another person and I tell them about this other person and the problems I'm having with them, it's only to make peace. Still, say the words. Force yourself 
or train yourself to say the words before you begin. You know what? I, I, I want you to help me make peace. And the reason why I'm saying this is so that you can help me make peace between me and the other person. Even if it's in your heart, say it with your mouth. Okay. Would that be also for the person saying, I want to make peace with you and therefore I want to get resolve what our I think it's. Are. I think that's a beautiful thing because a lot, I think it would be a beautiful thing to say to that person because a lot of times, um, you know, let's say I have an issue with you and I'm saying, you know, remember you said that you were going to be at the, uh, at the place at 8 o'clock and then I came and I had to break three appointments in order to be there at 8 o'clock and you weren't there and... If you start that way, even, again, if it's in your heart to make peace, the other person is immediately, if you don't say it, the, the other person is immediately going to be on the defensive. You say, hey, 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 I never told you that I was going to be there for sure. I told you that I was going to try to be there. And all of a sudden, you're fighting, you're having a new fight over the same thing. Right. Now imagine you go up to that person and say, hey, listen, you know, I really want to make peace. All of a sudden, if you say those words, the... Everything else that, you're, that you say, even if you use the exact same words, your tone is going to change. I really want to make peace with you. Can we discuss the fact that I showed up there at 8 o'clock and you weren't there and I had three appointments that I, I, I canceled in order to be there? I, I, I know. You know, I tried to come. I really did try to come. But, and by the way, I never said I was going to be there. It's a whole different conversation. Then you're opening up to other perspectives and seeing a bigger picture. Yeah, like because the other person understands from, it's like, can imagine like a, mm -hmm. you see, I'll tell you a Hasidic story, one of my favorite Hasidic stories. And I wish I remembered the Rebbe's name. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. You know, like, like a lot of Hasidic stories take place in the forest because forests were like very real. That was a real part of life. If you wanted to go from one place to the other, oftentimes you had to go through the forest. So it, it was a real part of life. And forests were filled with thieves, and they were filled with wild animals that would kill you. So it was very dangerous. You know, It's like going through a really bad neighborhood on a regular basis. It was <laughs> scary, especially at night. Yeah. Especially since horses are spooked by wolves, apparently. Mm -hmm. So you know, all of a sudden, you, know, you want to... Can you imagine you're taking a journey into a really dangerous neighborhood with an excellent chance your, your wheels are going to fall off? Like that's that's basically what it was. So in this in this story, right? This Rebbe is going with his Hasidim and they're in this, you know, in this wagon on the horse, and then they get into the middle of the forest and the horse stops and because it sees wolves and it's frozen. So so now what's gonna happen? Now the wolves are gonna jump into the the wagon and they're gonna kill everybody. So the Rebbe comes down. And he sees that there's a head wolf. You know, they say the leader of the pack, right? That's a real thing. Like the wolves have a leader of the pack. Right, yeah. So, and this Rebbe, he, he gets down and the Hasidim are like, you know, this is like, what, what are you doing? This is, you know. He gets down and he unbuttons his shirt and he holds open his shirt. And the wolf walks up to him and he smells his chest. And then the wolves go away. <laughs> and, and the Rebbe explained, he was smelling to see if I had any anger in my heart. Mm. And if I did, he would have attacked because it's like... Anger or fear? Anger, 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 anger. 
So you see, like, when, when people approach each other and there's some tension between them, the first thing is they're, they're smelling anger. If you're smelling anger, you're going to go into a completely different mode. But if you speak words of peace, then you're not smelling anger, and then the other person understands that, that something else is happening. Yeah, it's tough. Well, it sounds like you're doing something very beautiful, and it's great. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, so t there are two, two thoughts. One is, I remember uh, Rabbi Green said something that I always thought was great. You know, it's a mitzvah to love every single Jew, right? But he said, you know, some you can love from afar. <laughs> <laughs> So again, it goes back to levels. It goes back to levels. One level is that they're actively fighting and they're hating each other. And another level is they forgive each other and they're loving each other from afar. And at their level, that might be enough. If they let go of the anger, they let go of the hate, then 
they don't have to necessarily be best friends. So I don't know that that's a necessarily a realistic or that that's, it's black and white and that's the only outcome that, that, that constitutes success here. So that's number one. Number two is that some people are very slow to forgive. And the, it says it in Perke Abos. There's some people, people have different personality traits. Some people are very quick to forgive. And some people are born with this attribute. They're very slow to forgive. But it doesn't mean that they don't forgive. They're just slow to forgive. So it sounds like the, the other party is on the road to forgiveness. What I would do is let it go. I mean, this is just my, my personal take on it. Let it go. And then in another three months or something like this, then try to make an event and a fresh event and invite them and not make it an issue. Just, just it's a brand new event. And these are the people on the guest list and see what happens. See what happens, you know? 